Welcome to the Perfect Puzzle. We're going to start with a word of prayer before we get into the book of Habakkuk this, this session. Father, as we come before you in studying your word, we ask you to lead us and guide us, Father, and help us to understand your word. Help us to incorporate it into our bodies and into our lives and apply it to ourselves, Lord, and help us to see how this word of yours applies to us, applies to our lives, applies to our loved ones today, Father. In Jesus' name I we ask this. Amen. Okay. We're in the book of Habakkuk. And starting in chapter we're actually at the very beginning. It's chapter one. Yeah, we saw in the first session, the introduction, Habakkuk and the people of Judah were now exposed to the Word of God. On one hand, that was exciting for you know, man like like our prophet, each word told Habakkuk more about his God. The more he heard, the more exalted God, the Holy One, became in Habakkuk's eyes. But as Habakkuk began to see the perfect holiness of God, he became more and more concerned about the imperfections and sins of God's people. You know, it was true, idolatry was gone. Men now worshipped Yahweh. Josiah the king was working tirelessly to promote knowledge of the Lord and his kingdom of Judea. But it's also clear that the religious reformation was really superficial. The hearts of the men and women who came to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, they weren't much different than they were when they had bowed down before the pagan altars. See, simply knowing the law did not produce holiness. It didn't do it then, it doesn't do it now. God's people were not obeying the commands of their God. Here you have the nation of Judah, a people called by the name of God, blessed with the law of God, daily bringing shame on his holy name by flagrant disregard of what was the right thing to do. They twisted and perverted the law. They even did violence against those who tried to walk by the law. This is Habakkuk's burden as we turn to the first chapter. He opens his heart and mind to us and expresses a complaint that must have been constantly on his lips. Now, as I read the scripture through these three chapters, I want you to understand something. Uh, Hebrew is a picture language. By that, I mean it paints a picture. So it can be somewhat difficult to translate it into, you know, 21st century English. So I'm going to be using what I call the personal version of the Bible, so if it doesn't read exactly like yours, uh, there's a reason for that. I'm trying to give you the sense of what Habakkuk is writing. So, beginning in, in verse, uh, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. That's verses uh, 1 through 4. You know, how long am I going to cry? Habakkuk. You know, I was asking the Lord. I was pleading. How long will I cry? 
The second time he uses the word cry in verse 2, the Hebrew word there is actually scream. You know, Habakkuk's actually saying, I cry to you, Lord, you don't hear me. I scream out before you, you don't help me. Let me ask you something. Do you ever feel that way? If the king was righteous, why was justice absent? You know, the answer is found in the, in the way the law was administered in Judah of Habakkuk's day. You know, the king's power was supreme in Jerusalem because that's where his throne was. That's where his, you know, his capital was. You know, but he reigned through his, you know, he reigned through his personal officers in Jerusalem. But outside the capital, in the little villages and towns of Judea, the administration of justice was a local affair. There wasn't a code of statutory law administered by trained officials and enforced by public police. Cases were brought by individuals before the local elder in a city who sat at each city's gates. The plaintiff and defendant, they brought their witnesses to give evidence and they would plead their own cases. There are a lot of ways that justice could be perverted in a, in a situation like that. False witnesses are easy to hire in Judah. A friendly lie might be told for a neighbor in return for a promise of similar help later. And the men who made the decisions, you know, they weren't above a bribe. Many went out of their way to seek them. You know, by sheer weight of numbers, those who tried to keep the law and do justice might be overwhelmed and defrauded by the wicked around them. Justice was administered. It was perverted and crooked sort of justice. And Habakkuk's moaning, the law is paralyzed. It's not working. The ju judicial system is not functioning. Let me give you a little... Uh, an illustration of that. You know, in the United States today, before he's executed, the average capital offender will spend 22 years in legal procedures at a cost of around $1.8 million. You know, so if a guy kills someone and is found guilty and sentenced to die, it costs our government about $1.8 million at 22 years of legal hoops before he's executed. You think maybe our system's paralyzed? You know, our ju judicial system is not working the way it was me meant and designed to work. History shows, though, when a society or country can't deal with its infection quickly and effectively, just like a human body, that infection is going to kill it. But Habakkuk's thoughts are laying not so much with people as they are with God. He was not moved as much by anger as he was by the concern for the glory of God. How could the holy God let his people go on like this and dishonor him? You know, shouldn't God move to remedy the situation? Must he not move the hearts of the people as he had moved Josiah's, bring Judah to love and obey him? Must not God be glorified in the sight of all the heathen? Now let me give you some background of what's going on in the local history here. Uh, in 626 B.C., Nabopolassa, a Chaldean prince, led a rebellion. He defeated the Assyrians outside the city of Babylon. He took the city, established the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The Assyrians repeatedly tried to dislodge him, but Nabopolassa maintained his hold on the city. And even if Habakkuk had been told of this situation in far-off Babylon, 
He could hardly have foreseen developments that less than two decades later were going to come. So by 620 BC, six years later, Napopolassar had formed an alliance with the Medes. They were a fierce people on a serious northeastern border. The area we would probably think of as uh, Afghanistan today. This coalition would make great inroads into Syrian territory. Soon Assyria would be fighting for existence. And within five years of Habakkuk's experience, Egypt, Assyria's ancient enemy, would see such a danger from the, this alliance of the Medes and the Babylonians that Egypt would send an army to, to support Assyria, their mortal enemy. And just two years after that, in 614 BC, the Medes took the capital city of Assur. I'm sorry, uh, eight years. By 612, the Allies assaulted Nineveh, you know, the, the citadel, the capital of Assyria, and it took them three months that they destroyed it. And that was the end of Assyria. It was only a matter of time before the terror of the name of Assyria that had been raised in the hearts of generations of Hebrews. The Syrians were the ones who had uh, defeated Israel, the nation, the northern kingdom. But then it's going to be transferred to the name of Babylon. And then within another 15 years, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabopolassar's son, would begin a series of actions against Judah that by 586 B.C. are going to leave the temple in Jerusalem a smoking, smoking, crumbling ruin. Now all of that, Habakkuk, he couldn't know about it. But Habakkuk, God, did know. And as Habakkuk wrestled with his problem here in these first four verses, God spoke to him, this man who was so concerned with the Lord's glory. Because God's not going to permit his people to keep on sinning. God's preparing an instrument he's going to use to chastise them. And God, you know, he says, Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless, ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places that are not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at the fortified cities. They build earth ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own strength is their God. Now God's saying, don't accuse me of not working. Don't accuse me of not seeing. I'm doing something, Habakkuk, that if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe it. I'm kind of convinced that's why God doesn't tell us what he's doing. He knows if he told us what would be happening in our lives, you know, five years from now, we wouldn't believe it, or worse, we might argue about it. You know, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, the Lord tells us his ways are not our ways. 
His thoughts are higher than ours. And that means God does not have an obligation to give us an explanation about our expectation. His promise is simply relaxation. You know, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4 verse 7, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which passes understanding shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, God's saying, when you're anxious, you're uptight. I I don't promise you a peace that comes from your understanding. But you're going to get a peace that passes your understanding. I'm going to bypass your puny little brains, you know, and I'm going to infuse you with a deep peace in your heart. And in these verses, he said to Habakkuk, you know, you're accusing me of indifference and inactivity, but if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. And then it's almost as if Habakkuk says, okay, try me. Because the Lord then proceeds to explain something of what he's doing. To Habakkuk, who understood the holiness of God, and who saw beneath the facade of Judah's apparent roof form, and saw its enter depravity, there were no doubts about justice, and there was no retreat to a fuzzy concept of love that robbed God of his holiness and left him the emasculated image that's been honored by the wishful thinkers of all ages. Habakkuk knew God's love for his people, and he recognized the cancer of sin that now infected, infected the body of Yahweh's beloved. Now, sin had led to Habakkuk's original complaint. Habakkuk looked into the face of his God and saw the Lord's unchanging purpose. He saw love expressed as chastisement. Read verse 11 carefully because this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Because in Daniel chapter 4 verse 30, we're going to read the words of Nebuchadnezzar. The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the bite of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Nebuchadnezzar is lifted up with pride. He trusted completely in himself with no trust in God. And we have a few of those people running around today. They're trusting in themselves rather than in God. In this nation, there's a lack of humility in the leadership. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, it's a form of insanity. And each political party, not just one of them, all of them, they all boast about what it can do or what it has done. They point the finger of guilt at at the other party and those from that party who are holding office. You know, I agree they should repent, but, you know, I kind of think everyone who is at the other end of the pointing finger should also repent. You know, our big problem in America is we depend upon our own strength, our own power, and our own ability. There's certain TV programs that I have to turn off because I'm tired of listening to people boasting of their accomplishments. And let's face it, their accomplishments are not very much. It reminds me of the Greek fable of a mountain travailing. What did it bring forth? Did it bring forth another mountain? No. Brought forth a mouse. You know, the boasting of these great men today sounds like a mountain. 
what they have accomplished is about as big as a mouse. In other words, God's saying to Habakkuk, you think I'm not doing anything about the sin of my people? I'm preparing a nation on the banks of the Euphrates River, and if my people don't repent, I'm going to turn the Babylonians loose. And they came, and their destruction of Jerusalem was fierce and terrible. Some of the things they did when they took the people of Judah captive are almost unspeakable. And in verse 12, Habakkuk chapter 1, O Lord, are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One? We will not die, O Lord. You have appointed them to execute judgment, O Rock. You have ordained them to punish. Now we see Habakkuk's problem. The Babylonians are even more wicked than the people of Judah. So why would God choose a more wicked nation to punish a nation which was comparatively less wicked? You know, it's not going to be the first time God used this, this method. Isaiah 10 verse 5. Uh, the Assyrian is called the rod of God's anger. In other words, God raised Assyria like a whip in order to chastise the northern kingdom of Israel. And after God had used Assyria for the chastisement of Israel, he judged Assyria for her own sins. We find the same thing being repeated here. God is going to use a wicked nation, Babylon, to chastise his people. When he's through with that chastisement, he's going to judge Babylon. And God did just that. You know, God moves in the affairs of men. But the problem remains. How can a holy God use a sinful nation to accomplish his purposes? You know, I'm going to tell you what may be a new thought for you. You know, during the so-called Cold War, if you're old enough, you probably heard it said. You probably even heard it said from some pulpits or uh, churches. That God would never let Russia overcome the United States because, you know, we're the fair-haired boys. We're the good guys. We're the fine people. We're the ones who send missionaries to godless nations. Oh, God would never use Russia to chastise us. But if you believe the Bible, well, you're going to find that God's method is to use a sinful nation to judge a people who are less sinful. And if we can see what God's doing today behind the scenes, it probably terrifies. You know, my thought is he's actually moving against our nation. And why is that? Because at one time, our nation had a knowledge of God. It's superficial, it may have been. The Bible was once held in reverence. You know, there were very few people who knew much about it, but it was respected. But today, the Bible is ignored. It's absolutely rejected by this country. You know, the politicians take an oath by placing their hand on it, but they don't know or care what's between its covers. Will God allow our nation to continue in its godliness and flagrant sins? I don't think it's gonna, this, he's going to let it go on. Will God use a godless nation to chastise us? Well, that's what about that was Habakkuk's question. Why would God, who is a holy God, use a pagan, heathen people to chastise his people? Well, you know, listen to Habakkuk's eloquent complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one? 
talk about sucking up. You know, God has come out of eternity. He is the eternal God. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one, Habakkuk says in effect. You're a holy God. How can you use a nation like Babylon? You know, there's a nation rising down there on the banks of the Euphrates River, but I never dreamed you're going to use them against us. Oh, they've been friendly to us. You know, when King Hezekiah was sick, Babylon sent ambassadors to him, and he gave them the red carpet treatment. He actually showed them all the treasures of the kingdom. Now, of course, those ambassadors made notes of that because they, they're going to be coming back one day to get that gold. You can refer to the uh, book of Second Kings, chapter 20, verses 12 through 19 for that. Habakkuk didn't realize all that. He never dreamed God's going to use Babylon to chastise Judah. He didn't understand why the holy God would use such a method. And then he says, we shall not die. And he's right about that. Because that statement goes back to the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God made promises to Moses and to Joshua and to David. He gave promises to the prophets who appeared on the scene before Habakkuk. God had said he would never let the nation perish. We shall not die. That's a pretty good statement, by the way, to drop down on any of your friends who might believe that God is through with the nation Israel. See, God's not through with them. God has an eternal purpose with them. Just as he has an eternal purpose with his church, which he's calling out of this world. And thank God, the child of God today can say, we shall not die. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth to die, or at least he said he did, to die in your place and in my place. He said, I am the resurrection and and the life. And then he came back from the dead. He was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's Paul writing in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. The Lord Jesus said to the two weeping sisters of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead. And, you know, think of that. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now when Habakkuk said we shall not die, he's right. They wouldn't. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe that? That's John chapter 11 verses 25 and 26. That's the message of the gospel. It's something for you and me to believe. Now someday, you know, you're going to die physically. But are you now dead spiritually? If you are, you're going to be dead in trespasses and sins for the rest of eternity. That means eternal separation from God. God is a holy God. And he is not going to take sin into heaven. But he promised that if we will trust his son, he's going to give us eternal life. Because God says if you will believe that you are a sinner and that you don't deserve salvation... And can't work for it. If you're going to, if you believe that, then I'll offer it to you as a gift, and by my grace you will be saved. You will receive eternal life. He that has the Son has life. Do you have the Son today? If you do, you have life, eternal life, and you won't die. 
If you don't, you're going to die and go to hell. Those are the two options. And when Habakkuk said to God, we shall not die, he was on the right track. But he couldn't understand, just like a lot of us don't understand, some of the performance of God in this world. God had told Habakkuk earlier he needed to get a perspective of it. Now you and I, we have a tremendous advantage and we have the perspective of history. We can look back to Habakkuk's time and even beyond to the very beginning of the human family. We have a very good perspective of God's dealing with the nations of this world and God's dealings with the nation of Israel. Also, God's dealing today with his church that is in the world. And he moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He has told us his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. I told you this earlier, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, don't be disturbed if you can't think as God thinks. Because, let's face it, you're not God. But unfortunately, many of us try to take his place. We try, you know, a lot of us are trying to work for their salvation, thinking their character and their good works is going to merit it for them. You know, they're expecting God to pat them on the head someday and say, Oh, you were certainly a nice, sweet little boy down there. When actually they were corrupt sinners, alienated from the life of God, with no capacity for God whatsoever. If you come to the Father, you will come His way. You're not going to get there if you don't. We need to recognize that. We are a nation of proud people who need to be deflated, just like a pen deflates a balloon. Instead of blaming everyone else for the problems in our nation or the problems in our church or the problems in our home, we should fall on our knees before God and confess our own sins. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That was a condition of the nation of Judah in the days of Habakkuk, when he said to God, We shall not die. Then he goes on, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And there's Habakkuk pointing his finger at Babylon. They're the bad guys, and we're the good guys. You know, it's amazing how quickly we can change our point of view. When I lived in New Mexico, you know, I had a good had the good fortune to meet a young Indian, American Indian pastor who said to me, you know, you know, in the old days when the Indians would raid a village and kill some of the whites, it was called a massacre. But when the whites raided the Indian village and destroyed all the Indians, it's called a victory. Now, it's interesting how we always class ourselves with the good guys. Almighty God, the, thou hast established them for correction, as Habakkuk writes. You know, he's saying, oh Lord, it really isn't us who are bad after all. They were the mean people. They're the ones you should judge and correct. Has he forgotten? You know, Habakkuk went to the Lord and asked the Lord why he wasn't doing something about the evil among his own people. He pointed out people were flaunting the law, ignoring God, paying no attention to his commands. 
Habakkuk had accused God of not doing anything about the situation, but apparently he'd forgotten that. But though Habakkuk accepted the rightness of the decreed punishment, he's now faced with an even greater puzzle that he expresses in verses 13 to 17. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the, while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks, catches them in his net, he gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices in his glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, and burns incense to his dragnet, for by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Now, as an aside, those fishing implements referred to in verse 16 are used figuratively to represent the weapons of war that the Chaldeans intended to use to overcome the Jews. And it was customary among ancient nations to offer sacrifices to their weapons. Now Habakkuk said in these verses, though, Lord, that's not, you know, this is not a good solution. I know we're wicked. Oh, but, you know, we're a lot more better than the Babylonians. We're more righteous than they are. They're going to descend upon us like cruel fishermen, scoop us up like fish in their nets, and they're going to attribute the victory to their God. God, you can't allow that, Lord. You know, he's really struggling here. You know, not only is God not doing what Habakkuk thinks he should be doing with the people of Judah, but he seems to be saying the Babylonians are going to be victorious in their conquest. That's not fair at all. You know, I think we can all relate to what Habakkuk's saying. You know, but we say things like this. How come they got a new house, we ask. Now, Lord, you know I have devotions regularly. I come to church faithfully. I haven't seen them in church for weeks. Why are you blessing them when you should be blessing me? You know, we can translate this into the times in which we live. Why does God permit evil? You know, he permits it because he's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. And he's provided a cross and a crucified Savior so that no one needs to perish. He did that at the first coming of Christ. And Habakkuk's second question is, why doesn't God judge the wicked? Well, God's going to answer that question at the second coming of Christ because that's when he will judge sin. We All we need is a perspective to see the answers to these two questions. Christ came the first time to wear a crown of thorns and to die upon a cross. Next time he comes, he's going to be wearing a crown of glory and he's going to hold a scepter that we will use to rule the earth. To make a personal application of that, we ask this question, why does God permit this trial to happen to me? I don't know what the answer is for you, but God has an answer. You know, I mean, when you think about it, actually, you know, what right do we have to question our maker? 
What right does any little man have to look into the face of heaven and demand, why do you do this? Because, well, you know, to begin with, that's none of your business. It's God's business. This is his universe, and he's running it to please himself, and we're to trust him. Personally, I am the oldest child of four that my mother and father had. I had two sisters and a brother. My father died when I was four years old. I was raised in a one-parent household. Growing up, sometimes even today, I did it more when I was younger, but I still occasionally ask God why he allowed that to happen. There have been a lot of times he's done things to me he hasn't e explained. He took my brother in 1984. He took one sister in 1998. And I really have a lot of questions about why he did that. But I don't have any answers. But I've learned more and more to trust my Heavenly Father. And you want to know something? I still have a lot of questions about it. Yeah, but I do know this. God has the answer. And someday he's going to tell me the answer. And in the meantime, I'll trust him. And like us, Habakkuk was a questioner. But we're about to see him do something very wise next time in chapter 2. Thank you for listening. This is the Perfect Puzzle.